0: In the following sermon, recorded in the Westminster Chapel on Sunday the 7th of October 1956, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is preaching on the text to be found in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 45 and 46. Now this second half of this first chapter of the Gospel according to St. John is one that is full of interest, in that it gives us an account of the calling of the first disciples and apostles of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Here are the men who afterwards became so notable as the first preachers of the Christian faith. Here are the men who were filled with such great blessings uh, during the time that they followed our Lord, and especially after his death and resurrection, and that mighty event that took place at, on the day of Pentecost at Jerusalem. Here we are told, I say, how they became Christian how they ever entered into this great blessing, Now, it is of great value to us because it reminds us immediately and very directly and in a very simple way of what the whole purpose of preaching is, what the real function of the Christian church is. Now, this is something of which we constantly need to be reminded because, as I'm never tired of saying, it does seem to me more and more that there are so many people today who are not Christians and do know nothing about the blessings of this Christian life simply because their whole approach to it has been so utterly wrong and so misguided. They have started with certain prejudices. They've never realized what it is nor what it's about. They've assumed that they know, but their assumption is wrong. Now, the only thing to do, therefore, is, I say, to go back Uh, to the scriptures themselves, and there we are shown this in a particularly clear manner. Now, this uh, particular case of Nathaniel uh, is one uh, in which uh, we are given more details than in the case of the others. About the others, we are virtually told very little, except that either our Lord called them himself, or they, at the instigation of John, went after him, and that they continued with him, and that they believed. But we are not given the details, we are not shown very much about the process. We are not uh, told what they felt, uh, what they may have passed through before they came to belief, but here, in the case of Nathaniel, we are given further details, and they are invaluable for us, because they show us how uh, this man himself, who afterwards uh, became uh, uh, the disciple, the apostle, sometimes referred to as Bartholomew, doesn't matter which you call him, whether Nathaniel or Bartholomew, it's the same men. We are shown how he actually came to this particular point. Very well, then let me put it to you like this: What is the business of the Christian Church? What are we met to do here tonight? What am I called upon to do in particular, as one who has the privilege of preaching? Well, I suggest to you that my task, my business, as it is the business of the whole church, is to do the very thing that this man Philip did for Nathanael. Philip himself, you see, had come to the Lord the day following Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. Then Philip findeth Nathanael and makes his statement, unto him. So in exactly the same way as Philip went to Nathaniel and presented a position to him, it is my business, it is my duty this evening to do precisely the same thing to you and for you. Now here I say we are reminded exactly of what this message is, what it's all about. And then at the same time we are shown in this amazing manner what it is that hinders so many people, what it is that comes between them and this blessing and this realization. Let me put it therefore like this. What does uh, the Lord Jesus Christ mean to you? Where does he come in your life? What have you received from him? Here you can read in this book about these men uh, who came in this way and you can see how they lived afterwards and what a blessed, happy, joyous life they lived. Well, now let me put it the question then in that form. Uh, do you know anything about the blessings and the joys of Christian living? Take these men, take others, take a man like the Apostle Paul. Look at him and uh, the account he gives of the change that took place in his life. And his knowledge of Christ, he says, you know, if you ask me to define what I mean by life, he says, this is my answer to me to live is Christ. What do you think of death then, say to him? Well, he replies saying, and to die is gain. Why? Well, it's meaning, it means to be with Christ, which is far better. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me, he says. I don't care whether I'm abounding with goods or whether I'm bereft of everything. I know both how to be abased and how to abound. I have learned in whatsoever state I am therein to be content. That's his experience. That's the experience of all these other apostles and disciples. You've read of those first Christians They had to face the terrible choice of saying either Caesar is Lord or else Jesus is Lord. And they were told quite plainly that if they persisted in saying that Jesus is Lord, they'd be put to death. And they gladly suffered death. They used to go to their death thanking God that they'd been accounted worthy to suffer for his name's sake. Now what is this? What is this knowledge of Jesus Christ? The question I'm asking is, have we all got this? Do we possess it? Do we find that our relationship to Jesus Christ transforms our life, changes it completely, revolutionizes everything, and brings us into this condition in which we can say, as the apostle said of old, to me to live is Christ. Is he that? You can read the whole history of the Christian church since then, and you will find that there have been ordinary people like ourselves, not of necessity great apostles like these. Ordinary people have testified to exactly the same thing. You can get accounts of them, living in this country and in other countries, You can see it in the case of a man like John Bunyan, and you read his story in Grace Abounding, and he'll tell you this, that one of the things that helped him most of all when he was in darkness and looking for this was that one afternoon he happened to listen to three poor old women who were there knitting together in Bedford and talking to one another about the things of God and of Christ, And he felt how happy they were, what a joy they'd got. And he was miserable and wretched. He'd have given the whole world if he'd but got what they'd got. They somehow knew Christ as he didn't know him, and he wanted that. That's it. Ordinary people. It's the whole story of the church throughout the centuries. Now the question is, I say, have you got this? Do you possess this? Has Christ given you these things? and come to you in this way. Well, now, my whole suggestion this evening is that there are so many who are lacking that and who don't know that, simply because their initial approach to it is all wrong. Very well, let's put it like this. What, then, is the message? What is the first step in becoming Christian? What, in other words, do we find was Philip's message to Nathaniel? And there's no question about that, is, is there? This is how he puts it. Philip said to Nathanael, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write Jesus, the son of Joseph of Nazareth. What does that mean? Well, that first and foremost we come face to face with the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we've got to start there. I'm starting at the very beginning. There is nothing further back than this. This is the very essence of the Christian preaching. It's the first thing we've got to consider. Let me emphasize it, therefore, by putting negatives. Is it not true to say that there are so many people who, when they begin to consider Christianity, think that it's a question primarily of considering various views of life and that this is one of the views concerning life, that there are many teachings offering themselves to men and that this is a teaching amongst teachings. But the world is in trouble, of course, and there are great problems. Well, there are various teachings that are put forward. Well, there's a sort of Christian attitude, they say, towards war and peace and things like that. That's their whole conception of it. So they start with a consideration of the Christian attitude towards war and peace and industry and education and so on. And they never leave the Christian attitude. In other words, their whole conception of Christianity is that it is a particular teaching. You get the impression from these people that uh, that is the whole of Christianity. What has Christianity got to say about these subjects? What's it got to say about uh, economics and about social conditions, about housing, and a thousand and one other things? And they say, well, no, that's it, that's Christianity, the Christian view of this, that, and the other. What is Christianity, therefore? Well, it's just a philosophy. It's a point of view. It's an attitude which you take up with regard to particular subjects. I think you'll agree that there are many in that position. Then there are others to whom it's just a matter of uh, the kind of life you live. You ask them point blank, what do you mean by being a Christian? Well, they say a Christian, of course, is a person who doesn't do certain things and who does other things. Well, what's this? Well, a Christian doesn't get drunk. A Christian doesn't live on gambling. He doesn't live uh, to the flesh. He controls himself and his lusts and passions. He's got a moral view of life and of living, he attends a place of worship, and he does as best he can and is as helpful to other people as he can. They say, that's what I mean by being Christian. Now, I'm I'm not caricaturing this, I'm suggesting to you that that is precisely what people say. It is just a moral view of life, it's a moral ethical way of living, and there's no more to it, it's just that. The Christian is a good man, he's a man who lives a better life than another kind of man, that's it. Then others think of it in terms of an experience. They're looking for happiness or joy or peace or something like that. And there are many teachings in the world offering themselves to them that claim to give that. Here's one of them. Take this up this end, you'll get it. So they're looking for this sort of experience, some kind of initiation, which is going to just make you feel entirely different you know, the kind of thing I mean. How can I get rid of my worries? How can I stop fretting of being anxious? How can I sleep at night? How can I stop thinking? These are the things. And you know, the world is simply craving for these particular answers because it's a worrying and a difficult time in life. And men and women are seeking for all these things. And there are those who say that Christianity is, well, just a way of getting hold of that. That it's that which tells you that the Lord is your shepherd you shall not want. That somehow or another, if you just trust God, all's going to be well. And that's Christianity to do. And they leave it exactly at that. And so I might keep you and show you how, in many ways, there is this completely false and wrong conception. As to what really constitutes the beginning, the first step, the very essence of the Christian position and the Christian faith. What is it? Well, don't you see? It is to come face to face with this person. Look at this man, Philip, going to Nathaniel. He doesn't go to him and say, you know, Philip, come with me at once. You know how miserable I used to be and see how happy I am now. Can't you see my face shining, how radiant I am? Come at once, you'll get it. Isn't what he said. He didn't say, come with me and start living the moral life or the good life. No, no, Christianity doesn't start with those things.
1: Here it is.
0: Nathaniel said, Philip, we have found him. we found a person. I've met an individual, and I want you to come to him. Now, isn't it extraordinary that it is necessary to emphasize this? But I've given you my justification for doing so. There is nothing which is so easy, it seems to me, in this world as to think of Christianity even, without Christ. And people can talk about Christianity and his name is never mentioned. And they have no conception that the beginning of Christianity is to come face to face with the person and to meet him. Come and see. In other words... Before we begin to consider any teaching, because there is a teaching in Christianity, there is a moral, there is an ethic, there is an experience, all these things are here. Yes, but what separates Christianity from everything else is this, that Christianity tells you that you can only get all these things if you start with him. But that if you start with any one of them and don't start with him, what you get is not the true thing, it's the wrong thing. And let me make this plain again, in the midst of the modern confusion, there are many, many teachings that seem to be able to give people happiness. That's why the cults are thriving. We recognize that. They claim it and they can do it. There are people who are prepared to believe anything, and by believing it, they feel better. Spiritual cohesion every day and in every way I'm feeling better and better and no doubt you will up to a point unless you've got an organic disease and even then you may feel a bit better for a while yes, we recognize all that I say this is the differentiating point Christianity comes to you and says this in the first instance look here we are not going to discuss you nor your needs, your wants, your desires nor anything else for a moment here's the question have you confronted him have you considered him? Have you stood face to face with these facts? You see, Christian preaching is that which presents facts to people, facts about this person. Very well, what, is, what are the facts? What is the message? Well, you notice how uh, Philip put it to Nathaniel. He said to Nathaniel, you know, I've met a man, Jesus, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth. I've just been speaking to him. I've been with him. A man. Very well. Now then, I say, let's forget all philosophies, all Christian attitudes, and all these other things. The first thing that you and I've got to come to terms with is this. Now, let's forget that there's this Egyptian problem and that there's a possibility of a third war Stop it all. Banish it out of your mind. Get rid of it for the moment. Here is the most stupendous fact you've got to face in the world this evening Jesus of Nazareth. He belongs to history. Nearly 2,000 long years ago, there was a person called Jesus of Nazareth. He was born in a place called Bethlehem in a stable. And they put him into a manger. They didn't go on living in Bethlehem. They eventually went to live in Nazareth. That's why he was called Jesus from Nazareth. He'd spent most of his life there, working as a carpenter. Now Christianity starts with him. You see, before you begin to discuss theories about anything or ways of life and of living, we are just facing this fact that there has been in this world this Jesus, this person who lived in Nazareth, who worked as a man, as a carpenter, who began to preach at the age of 30, who was reported to have worked miracles and so on, all that you've got in these Gospels, there he is. Now, there I see is a solid fact. And there is no point in going any further until we are clear about him and understand exactly what this preaching about him means. So you notice that Philip goes further and puts it like this. He says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did right. What's he mean by that? Well, he means this, and it is an essential part of our preaching. This gospel starts with this person, the birth of Jesus, it says, was on this wires. We are looking at this person born into this world, put in the manger and all the rest. There it is. Yes, but that isn't all. That's only half the statement. This is the one, said uh, Philip to Nathaniel, of whom Moses in the law did write. Now these men were Jews, you see, and they'd got their Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures, and they heard these scriptures read Sunday by Sunday and expounded by their teachers and by the authorities, and Philip says to Nathaniel, we have found him of whom Moses spoke in the law. How did he speak of him in the law? What did he say? Go back to your Old Testament. Now, this is Christianity, you see. We're not discussing what the Christian attitude is towards war, whether it's right for a Christian to go into the army or not. No, no, you don't start with that sort of thing. That comes very much later. You start with this person. There is no Christianity apart from him. Very well, I say I must go back to my Old Testament then. Because I'm told that Moses, who wrote the first five books in the Bible, spoke about this person. Where does he do so? Well, he does so everywhere. And you remember that our Lord himself said this after his resurrection. His own disciples hadn't quite understood his death. They were amazed at the great and wonderful fact of the resurrection. And our Lord met them and he said, look here, let me take you through the scriptures. So he took them through the books of Moses, the law. He took them through the book of Psalms. He took them through the prophets. And he says, can't you see they're all writing about me? The very thing that Philip said to Nathaniel right at the beginning. Well, what have they said about him? Are you aware of the evidence? Tell me, have you taken up the position that you've rejected Christianity because you don't understand certain things or that you don't like its attitude about this or that? But tell me, have you ever really considered this biblical evidence? Here is the claim that is made, that this Jesus of Nazareth is the one of whom this Old Testament is speaking. How does it speak of him? Well, Moses one day very explicitly put it like this. He was a great leader, a great prophet of the people. And he looked at the people, and he said, "You know, another prophet like unto me will God raise up from amongst the people, him shall he hear." And you know, from that moment, these children of Israel began to wait for the coming of this great prophet. They said, "Don't you remember how Moses said that a great prophet was going to come? And a certain prophets appeared before them and preached to them with great authority. They said, "Is this the prophet?" Well, they said he's very good, he's very wonderful, but he isn't the prophet, the prophet that was to come. But you know, Moses in those five books at the beginning of the Bible uh, doesn't only speak of him there, he speaks of him in many places. He speaks of him in the very third chapter of Genesis away back at the beginning, doesn't he? In writing the account of the fall and what took place in the Garden of Eden Moses recorded this statement, that when Adam and Eve had sinned and had fallen, God came down into the garden and said this to them, the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. Moses wrote about him, said said Philip to Nathanael, and he was writing about him there. In recording that promise of God to men when he had made a shambles of his life, as it were, and had been told that the seed of the woman, someone who's coming out of this line, out of Eve ultimately, he is going to bruise this serpent. He's going to destroy this devil that has dragged mankind down into ruin. There he begins to write of it. That's what Philip has got in in his mind. But you see, it doesn't stop at that. Moses also records for us that God visited Abraham on one occasion and said to him, Abram, I am thy shield and thine exceeding great reward. He said, you don't seem to have very much at the present time, but I'm telling you now, Abram, that the whole world is going to be indebted to thy seed that through thy seed, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Abraham, he said, you haven't a son at the moment, but it's all right, I'm going to give you one. And I'm telling you that ultimately, out of thy seed, from thy seed, through thy seed, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Who's that writing about? To whom does that refer? Who's indicated there? The answer is still the same. Nathaniel, we have found him about whom Moses wrote in the law. Here he is, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Oh, I could keep you endlessly, my friends. The Old Testament is full of this, as our Lord said. A promise is given that the scepter shall never depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. You remember even a harling prophet like Balaam, you find the record in the book of Numbers, chapters 22, 23, and 24. Even he said this, inspired by the Spirit of God, a star shall arise out of Jacob, and a scepter shall arise out of Israel. Who is he talking about? Nathaniel said, Philip, he of whom Moses wrought in the law, has come, we found him, Jesus, son of Joseph, from Nazareth, come and see him. And then, you know, as you read all those rules and regulations in the books of Numbers and Leviticus, about the burnt offerings and the sacrifices that the children of Israel were to take to the tabernacle and to offer them, and about the high priest and all these things, you say, what's all that got to do with me? And the answer that Philip gives to Nathaniel, as the Lord gives to his own disciples after his resurrection is this. They're all speaking about him. That's his teaching. That's his claim. That these burnt offerings and sacrifices are not only of value in and of themselves to those children of Israel for the time being, they're types their prophecies, their adumbrations, they're pointing to something, and what they're saying is this that God uh, must demand a sacrifice for sin that without shedding of blood there is no remission of sins very well animals for the time being bulls and goats and heifers and so on but that isn't enough this really cannot cleanse the soul from sin and from dead works well what's their value oh they're just telling us that a day is coming when God will provide a sacrifice himself there will be a lamb of God and he will take it all away and it will never be seen again and never reckoned to mankind that's what they're saying So that our Lord himself said, you remember, think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. He is the fulfillment of all these things. He himself is the great high priest as well as the sacrifice. He is the way. That's how you read about him in the law of Moses. And then you go on and you look at these prophets. Nathanael said, Philip, we found him of whom not only Moses wrote in the law, but of whom the prophets wrote. You know the prophets, Nathanael said, Philip, you've read them, you've heard them read to you. Do you realize that the one that they're speaking of has already come and that we found him? And I've been speaking to him, I want you to come and see him. What have they said about him? Well, you know, I could keep you for hours on this. Let me give you one or two ins- two details which show you how marvelous it is. You turn at once to your prophecy of Isaiah, and there you will find that it's prophesied that a virgin shall bear a child, and they shall call his name Wonderful, etc. A virgin shall bear a child, shall give birth to a child. Yes, the word, according to the latest researches, is virgin, still virgin, not a young woman, a virgin. There it is in your Old Testament. Now, my friend, I say before you begin to consider the Christian attitude towards this and that, you've got to start with a fact like that and with this fulfillment. Here is something facing us as a concrete issue. You turn to another prophet and you will find that he prophesies that this Messiah, this Deliverer, is going to be born in a place called Bethlehem. It's actually there in the prophecy of Micah. That he's to be born in Bethlehem. Oh, let me give you just one or two other facts. In the book of Daniel, in chapter 9, you'll be told the exact time he's going to be born. It's given in years. There it is exactly, precisely. Hundreds of years before it happened. You go to Zechariah, and you're told that he'll be seen riding into Jerusalem on the foal of an ass. There it is. In Isaiah 53... You are told that when he comes, he'll be like a root out of a dry ground. You won't be able to explain him in terms of his background or his ancestry. He'll just, as it were, spring up as a root out of a barren, dry wilderness where nothing grows at all. He'll suddenly come up out of it. That's what's been prophesied. Nathaniel said, Philip, it's happened. Come and see. But not only that. There you get the prophecy that his visage is marred, that he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The Jews didn't understand that. They thought their deliverer, their Messiah, when he came, would come as a great king, as a great military conqueror. They never thought he was going to be a man of sorrows. But there it is, there's the prophecy. That he's going to be led like a sheep to the slaughter and put to death in helplessness. That he's going to be stricken with grief. That God is going to smite him. There's the prophecy. The prophets did right. Well, let me summarize it by putting it to you like this. Can't you see that John the Baptist in the statement that he made to his disciples was just summarizing the whole of this prophetic teaching when he said... Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the whole world. He's pointing to this same Jesus, son of Joseph, out of Nazareth. He says, there he is. Look at him. Behold him. Look at him. Come to terms with him. Realize who he is. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the whole world. And indeed, I could have gone even further, and I could have shown you how in the types And in these shadows there in the Old Testament his resurrection is prophesied. The day of Pentecost is prophesied. All these things are there. Now then, says this man, Philip to his friend Nathaniel, there is my message to him. We found him, the one who fulfills all these things. The claim is, in other words, that the Messiah long expected has at last arrived. And that the Messiah is none other than this Jesus, this son of Joseph, out of Nazareth. In other words, what I'm putting before you is this. That you have no right to consider Christianity in any sense or in any shape or form until you stand face to face with the Incarnation, Jesus. Out of Nazareth, carpenter, reputed son of Joseph. The one of whom the whole Old Testament has been speaking. Here it is, the two in one person. So I again ask my question. Have you really faced this person? Have you really considered him? Have you really come to some terms or other with him? That's the first step in Christianity. Well, now then, let me go on and show you how this process continues. Nathanael found himself in difficulties. You remember what he said. Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? What does he mean? Well, he makes a very good point. Nathanael, in effect, said to Philip, Philip, I hear what you're saying, but I, I can't follow this. You say that the one of whom Moses wrote in the law and of whom the prophets wrote... Is Jesus, the son of Joseph, out of Nazareth? Now, Philip, he said that's impossible because there is nothing in the Old Testament scriptures that associate the Messiah with Nazareth. If you said Bethlehem, it would have been all right, but you're saying Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Is this possible? Now, that's what he meant, you know. Sometimes we tend to think that he's just speaking in these terms of Nazareth as a place to be despised. I believe that's absolutely wrong. He was speaking as a man who knew his scriptures. He was a man who knew his scriptures. He was reading them under that fig tree when our Lord had seen him before Philip ever went to him. He was a devout Israelite, as I'm going to show you. And he knew that there was no association between Christ and Nazareth. He said, how can it be from Nazareth? All right. A good point which I want to interpret in this way. The moment you are confronted by this message about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may very well find yourself in certain difficulties. There's nothing wrong in that. Don't believe people who tell you that you've only become a Christian when you stop thinking. No, no. We place no premium upon ignorance or absence of thought. Not at all. Nathaniel makes a good point. It's a true point. That isn't the difficulty. And you, my friend, may have certain difficulties as I stand before you and tell you that the Lord Jesus Christ is God and man, that he's two natures in one person, that he is the eternal everlasting son of God in the likeness of sinful flesh. You say, I don't follow, I can't grasp, I can't understand. All right, I'm not complaining. Register your difficulty. Make your protest, if you like. That isn't the vital point. Here's the vital point. What happens next? Well, you remember what Philip said to Nathaniel. Nathaniel, come and see. You don't understand. You've got your difficulty. I can't argue with you. All I say to you is this come and see. And you know what saved Nathaniel, in a sense, was that he did go. Although he had a difficulty, although he had a problem. He went. Come and see. All right, said Nathaniel, I'll come with you. Now, that I say is the crucial point. Let me just divide it up for you like this before I close. Because the passage itself divides itself up for us. What is it about Nathaniel in his response to the message? That leads him to salvation. Well, now this is what our Lord said about him. As he saw him coming, Jesus said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Which you can translate, if you like, like this. Behold in truth an Israelite, in whom is no guile. What's he mean? Well, what he means is this, he knows what's been said to Nathaniel by Philip, and he sees Nathaniel coming in spite of that, so he knows that Nathaniel is not being kept back by his difficulty. He isn't taking up the attitude of saying, well, now, of course, because you've said Nazareth, I'm no longer any interest, Ah, there's a flaw in your argument, therefore I'm no longer interested. A thousand people, a million people do that, you know. They say, ah, here's a fallacy, and the whole of Christianity is dismissed. Nathaniel doesn't do things like that. He's got a difficulty, he's got a problem. But he accepts the invitation, he says, I'll come and see. Very well, he does it, why? Well, because he is in truth an Israelite. What does that mean? Well, it means this. An Israelite, a true Israelite, was a man who was looking for the Messiah. You remember that old man, Simeon, of whom we read in the second chapter of Luke? There's the old man who'd been waiting for the salvation of Israel. Christ is born. He takes him up in his arms. He says, now mine eyes have seen, let thy servant depart in peace. Mine eyes have seen the salvation of God. What's it mean? It means this, the old man had been waiting for him. Like every true Israelite, like every Israelite who knew his scriptures and who read them, he knew a Messiah was to come. They were waiting, they were praying for his coming, they were longing for his coming. It was their greatest desire in life. They were seeking him and expecting him. And our Lord sees Nathaniel coming and he says, here is a true Israelite, here is in truth an Israelite. Here is a man who is longing for my coming, an Israelite who is seeking for the Messiah, for the Saviour. You see what this means for us? No man has ever become a Christian. No man has ever enjoyed the blessings of Christianity. Unless at some point or another he's been a seeker. Are you seeking salvation? Are you really looking for it? Would you like to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you like to experience his grand salvation? Would you like to be like the Apostle Paul and the other people to whom I referred at the beginning? My dear friend, here's the vital thing. Are you a true seeker? You'll never find him. You'll never know him until you truly seek him. If with all your heart you truly seek him, you shall surely find him. But if you're not a true seeker, well, then I hold out no hope for you. And until you become, I say, you'll never know him because you don't know your need of him. You're not desperate. But here was a man who was longing for him. He'd been waiting for him. And he hears the report. There's a difficulty. He says, it doesn't matter, I'm coming. Yes, he's an Israelite in truth, and he's also an Israelite without guile. What does this mean? Well, of course, it means that he was absolutely sincere. He was a sincere seeker. Without guile means this. There was no cunning. There was no deception. There was no concern about personal advantage. There was no employment of trickery for selfish advantage. That's the meaning of guile. And our Lord saw as Nathaniel was approaching him that he was a man without guile. You see, it means this, doesn't it? He could see that Nathaniel was coming not in order to have an argument with him. Not to say, now I've got him. Ah, after all, I've got him. Of course, Philip's excited. He hasn't much intelligence. He's easily carried away and he's always moved by sob stuff. He's gone soft, of course. He's psychological. But now I'm coming to this great authority of his and I've got him. I've got him absolutely taped and tripped. This question of Nazareth. Now then, for... Not at all. He's without guile. He's not coming to show his cleverness. He's not coming to win an argument or uh, to show how he can confound the authorities. He's not coming just to display himself or some personal advantage. No, no. He's a sincere seeker. He wants to know. He hears this report. He respects Philip, but there is this problem about Nazareth. How can it be resolved? Well, let's go and find out, he says. That's the secret, you see. Have you ever sought him without guile? Are you really serious? Do you mean business? Oh, I'll tell you why I'm asking my question. I know what it is to be clever and to think you can dismiss Christianity. And the whole time you're doing it, you're not being honest. You're covering up the sin that's in your life and in your heart. You're not really interested in truth at all. You're interested in yourself and your own cleverness and in downing Christ, downing an argument, downing Christianity, and how wonderful and how clever I am. Just one question I put, down the whole thing went. Nazareth. We do it, of course, in terms of science or something like that, but it's the same old thing. And we really don't mean business. We are not serious. We don't want to be saved. We don't want to be delivered. My dear friend, if you're honest, if you're sincere, if you're without guile, if you're a true seeker, I say, do what Nathaniel did. Come, come to him, come and see. What does that mean, says someone? Well, I summarize it like this. It means, I say, that you don't reject him and the truth about him simply because of certain difficulties that you have. But it does mean that you come to him just as you are with all your doubts and all your difficulties. You don't stay away and hide in a corner and say, No, no, I can't. I, It's impossible. My mind won't this and that. You say, Well, I'm going to him. Come to him. It means this, that you come to him as you can find him and see him in these Gospels. Read the stories again. Look at him. Explain him if you can. Explain the impact he's had upon the whole world ever since his coming. Look at him as you see him teaching. Listen to his teaching. Though he had had no training, just a carpenter, born in poverty, brought up in poverty, look at him. Can you explain it? How does he confound these doctors of the law? Whence this insight into the law of God. Why these claims for himself? He's either a madman, a lunatic, or else he is what he says, son of God. Listen to him. Go back and meet him. Forget all your cleverness, all your arguments, Christianity and Christian view of this and that. Leave it all, I say. Come back and on bended knee, look at this Christ, meet him in the gospel. Then ask him in simple prayer to reveal himself to you by the Holy Spirit. Tell him that as Nathaniel was impressed by the testimony and the invitation of Philip, you in your heart of hearts cannot dismiss the whole of church history. Tell him that you see the evidence of the centuries and the men, the greatest men the world has ever known, believing in him and praising his name. Tell him that you'd like to be like them but that you can't understand that there are difficulties and in absolute honesty ask him, Reveal it to me by the Holy Spirit, I want to know. Be sincere, be honest, cast yourself upon him and his love and mercy and compassion and yield yourself to him. In other words, accept my invitation as I repeat the words of Philip to Nathaniel. Come and see. Consider him anew and afresh. And I tell you that if you do so in honesty and with true seeking, you will end with Nathaniel in saying, thou art the Son of God. Very well. If he is the Son of God, why did he ever come into the world? If he is the Son of God, why especially did he ever die on that cross? God willing, I hope to go into this as it's expounded in the remainder of the chapter next Sunday night. But let me put it like this now. It all happened because it is the only way in which anybody can be saved and redeemed. He is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. Jesus, son of Joseph, from Nazareth, the great empty type, the Messiah long expected, God's own Lamb, the Lamb that God has provided as a sacrifice for sins, his own Son, in whom alone can forgiveness be found, in whom alone can God be known, In whom alone can we receive the new life and the new birth that changes everything, life and death, and opens for us the gateway into the bliss of eternity. My friend, I ask you but one question. Have you come to see him and to face him? Have you considered him the person? Come and see. Amen.